In a recent poll of nursery workers in England, they found that there was a new, we could say, endangered species. That is, imaginary friends are endangered. At least according to their observation, fewer and fewer children had imaginary friends. How many of you have had imaginary friends when you were little? A lot of you. I don't remember one. Maybe I did, but I, maybe I wasn't very imaginative. You could say that. And the culprit, they, they think, going on with this imaginary friend, friend, friend thing is what you might expect. Technology. Screens. The logic goes, with less boredom, there's less opportunity to cultivate your imagination to come up with an imaginary friend. There are fewer imaginary friends. It's kind of an encouraged thing, imaginative-wise, in our society for kids to have imaginary friends. It's not a bad thing, but there is an expectation that at a certain age, he will disappear or she will disappear, right? That children will no longer have imaginary friends when they reach, reach a certain age, well, some in our culture would view our faith in God in the same sort of way. They, they would view our understanding of who God is as an invisible, personal being as simply being an imaginary friend. If you don't believe that, have a conversation with someone who is agnostic or an atheist. I had a conversation similar to that before. It wasn't an, an argumentative one. We were friends. But he, he said to me, if God isn't real, then every time you gather together as a church and you sing and you pray and you read the scripture and you preach, you're just imagining something else. And there are a lot of people who think we just need to grow out of that. Well, think about what we confess as Christians. Every month we confess, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And this is a countercultural confession. It is totally countercultural. We live in a materialist society. And usually when we think of materialist or materialistic, we think of wanting to amass things for yourself. You want toys, you want houses, you want cars, you're materialistic. Well, at the root of this is a materialist worldview, thinking that all that really exists is the physical substances around us. And so when we say in the midst of a materialist culture that we believe in the Holy Spirit, an invisible personal being who is God, we are making a radical and strange, weird claim. Well, I would say it's only weird because of the materialistic worldview of things in which we find ourselves. It actually makes perfect sense. It makes all the sense in the world that this would be true. We believe in the Holy Spirit. What goes even beyond that radical claim is that we believe that the Holy Spirit, an invisible personal being, lives inside us. Embrace that radical claim. Confess that with all of your heart and believe it. Because this is what we find in the Scripture. This is what we find in this particular passage that we come to today as well. 
We, we could even say many who believe in God, who aren't like explicitly materialist, they think maybe God has created things, but then he has basically set the world in motion to work basically on a materialist sort of way. But we believe that the Holy Spirit is not only real, but he is active daily, that he is active in our lives, that he is doing things here and now. We should ask the question, what, what purpose is the Holy Spirit? Or what difference does the Holy Spirit make in our lives? What is he doing in and around us right now? Well, in this passage, John 14, 15 to 31, Jesus makes specific promises to his disciples, which are related to the work of the Holy Spirit. He makes three promises to the disciples which have a strengthening effect upon them. Not now, in the, in the situation in which they find themselves, but later on, these promises would have their full effect. And as we consider these promises and how they apply to us, we must understand the truth of it so that they might empower us and strengthen us even more. The Holy Spirit within us strengthens our resolve against sin, helps us to endure struggles, sufferings, and helps us to rejoice and the privileges of being his sons and daughters. So let's consider these promises from this passage together. First, we will see that Jesus promises the paraclete in verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It is a, it's a statement Jesus is making about the truth of those who love him. And evidence of love for Jesus is found in one's keeping of his commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Your version might say advocate, counselor, comforter, helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He clarifies who it is, the spirit who reveals the truth of who God is to his people, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is a mediator, the mediator, who asks the Father for the Spirit to be poured out on his people. I said Jesus promises the paraclete. Now that's a, maybe a strange word. If you grew up in church, you probably know it. It is taken kind of directly from the original language here. Not translated, it would be something like paraclete. Well, it's a difficult uh, word to translate some, somewhat because of our watered-down English language. We might translate it comforter, but comforter, you might think of that big blanket you pull up over your shoulders when you're cold at night. It's, you know, it gives you the warm fuzzies. No, not exactly what we're going for. Counselor, yes, but not in, a, not in just a therapeutic, kind of helps my feelings sort of way. Advocate maybe hits better and closer. I like to think of, of one who, who comes along and strengthens you for what's ahead. He, he is a strengthener, an encourager. This is, think of this as a strong word, not just therapeutic in its meaning. He is the one who comes along beside us and strengthens us. This one, Jesus says, the spirit of truth will be with you forever. As long as you live He's speaking to his disciples, as long as you live, even to the end of the age, he will be with you forever. 
The world cannot receive the Spirit. There's a contrast here between those who don't receive, those who don't see, those who don't know, versus those who know because He dwells with them. They know the Spirit of truth, He says, because He dwells with you. And I think what Jesus has in mind here is the Holy Spirit's presence with them in the person of Jesus in particular. He's been with you all along because He is here in me and He is with you. But He will be in you. There's this a transition that will take place at a future time. He is with you. He'll always be with you. And He will be in you. This Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, will not only be with you, but also in you. Think about what it would be like to have a superhero with you at all times. I imagine kids might feel this way when their parents or an adult is with them. It's like you have a superhero, right? You're a little three-foot kid walking around, and you're, you're, you, you, you can't do something. You can't tie your shoe. And here comes mom, and she ties your shoe. Wow, how did you do that? Or you can't get over some obstacle, and this big giant of a person, your mom or dad, comes over and picks the obstacle up and removes it for you, takes it out of your way, picks you up, puts you in the car. This amazingly strong superhuman is helping me every step of the way. But there will come a point in time when that individual, that child becomes an adult and has that same sort of superhuman strength, it seems. Well, imagine if a superhero was with you everywhere you went, got rid of all obstacles, took out any enemies that you had. It would be amazing. But what if somehow you got that power within you? You didn't need the superhero anymore. You were the superhero. You were strong and courageous. You could do anything that you wanted. Well, I hope you would see how the illustration breaks down. And yet, notice the difference between the spirit who is with the disciples versus the Spirit who will be inside the disciples. Having a wealth of resources within us through faith. And friends, I hope you have noticed or considered how this is exactly what was promised by the prophets of old. Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 27. This is what the Lord God says. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Holy Spirit of God indwells those who come to him in faith. But this supernatural power that we have is not to be used selfishly or just to fulfill our desires, but to walk in in the ways of the Lord. To be careful to obey Him. See, this is how the Spirit works within us. He empowers us, enables us to begin living for His glory. 
You are bigger on the inside because the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are stronger on the inside because the Holy Spirit dwells within you. This is the new covenant which is brought by the person and work of Jesus Christ and His life, death, and resurrection from the dead. And you might say, but it doesn't always feel that way. I don't always feel like I am stronger on the inside. Sometimes I feel really weak when it comes to fighting against sin, when it comes to enduring suffering, when it comes to all sorts of difficulties. I don't always feel strong. To which I would say, we receive the promises of God by faith and not by sight. Now there is a proper place in the body of Christ affirming one's profession of faith. We're going we're gonna to do that in Caleb's life as he's baptized and begins walking with the Lord. There's a place for recognizing the fruit of the Spirit within you. And yet, we embrace these promises by faith and not by sight. We hold to them, not because we clearly see them all the time, but because we believe in God who has promised it. We believe in His faithfulness. We believe it to be true, even if we can't see it with our own eyes. Brothers and sisters, your experience is not equal to the truth of the promise. Embrace it by faith. The Holy Spirit dwells in you who have come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, and He dwells in you. The Holy Spirit of God inside of you. A related promise to this that Jesus makes to His disciples is found in verses 18 to 24. He promises... His very presence. So not only will His disciples have the presence of the Holy Spirit, they will also have the presence of Jesus Himself and the Father. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. There's this familial aspect to our relationship with God. Jesus promises, I will come to you. And we have to figure out, well, what is he promising here? When will he come to his disciples? We have a few different options to choose from. Will it be at his resurrection, the resurrection appearances? I will will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Will it be through this indwelling of the Holy Spirit? I I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Or what we would call the parousia or the end times, when Jesus returns a second time to come to us and to take us to himself. Well, all of these things are true, so don't get me wrong. All of these things are true. He He did come to his disciples in the resurrection. He did come to them in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. He will come again on the last day. But which is true here? What is he promising here? Probably not the end times, because that all will see that. All eyes will be seeing Jesus coming on the clouds. We have that promise. Well, Jesus says, in that day, well, first, because I live, you also will live. So we might think he's speaking of the resurrection. But when is the resurrection life given to the disciples? When, when are they in possession of this new life? When they receive the Holy Spirit, then they are given new life in Christ. And further, Jesus says, in that day. 
So I, th- I take it to mean, in that day you receive new life by the Holy Spirit who is poured out upon you. You will know His presence, that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. This is when you will know the intimacy of this relationship. This is when you will truly grasp it. And we know even after the resurrection, the disciples were still confused. They, they still didn't quite understand. It wasn't until the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that they were able to confidently and boldly preach the gospel of Christ no matter what suffering came. Who is it who receives this promise of the Holy Spirit dwelling within them? And Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, and the Father, the full deity dwelling within them. It is those who love me and are therefore loved by my Father. And this is evidenced by the keeping of his commandments. Jesus says, I will manifest myself to him. Now this idea of loving God is not, doesn't take place often in the book of John. We often see about God's love for the world, God's love for his people, Jesus' love for his people. But here in these verses, we see a lot about our love or the disciples' love for Jesus. This is to whom this promise applies. Those who love me and are loved by my Father. And we speak a lot about faith, about coming in faith to Jesus Christ, about what that means is not just believing something to be true, but actually putting our reliance upon Jesus, our reliance in Jesus, our trust in Jesus. And we must add to that this idea of a warmth of affection for God. You might could imagine a child jumping to her father in the pool. And her jumping into the pool to her father who holds his hands out to her, in that moment she is demonstrating faith. But is it possible for her to have faith in her father without a genuine warm affection for him? I could imagine that to be true. She could have the faith to jump to him, trust that he is going to to catch her and, and hold her up. And yet the biblical idea of faith includes this warmth of affection, this love, experiencing this relationship with her father. I'm jumping to my father. I trust him because I love him and he's going to hold me and he's going to care for me. Do you have that kind of affection for your heavenly father? Don't fall into a a trap of, of merely intellectually trusting in Jesus, but have a love for him. Cultivate this deep love for him that you love him, that you know he loves you, experiencing the intimacy of this relationship. Do you love him? Not just do you trust him, do you love him? And how is that love demonstrated in your life? How is your love for your family members demonstrated? How is your love for the things of this world demonstrated? How is your love for the Father demonstrated in your life? Judas asks the question, how will you manifest yourself to us but not to the world. How will it just be this this narrow, exclusive sort of thing? What he has in mind, it seems, is the end time when he will display his glory. He will reveal himself to all mankind and we will bow before him, whether we love him or not, in humble submission. And Jesus' answer seems to confirm that he's speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' answer 
confirms that Jesus is coming to them refers to his presence with them in the Holy Spirit. We will manifest ourselves, myself, by making our home with him. This is the Father, Son, and Spirit making his home, his dwelling place within you. This word, these words of dwelling place, God dwelling with his people are used several times throughout John. They're used in John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This world became the dwelling place of God. It's used in verse 2 of this chapter. In my father's house are many rooms, dwelling places. We also get this idea in 2 Corinthians 16, which is, I I think, Paul understanding what this means that we have been made the home of the Trinitarian Godhead. We are temple. We are a temple of the living God. God making His home in us. And to this, we would go back yet again to Ezekiel chapter 36 and chapter 37, particular Ezekiel 37, verses 24 and following. Now, if you've been with us throughout the book of John, you've noticed that I've gone back to Ezekiel 36 several times. And you're, you're like, Jim, you've already done this. You can't, once you go back to an Old Testament passage, you can't use it again in another sermon. But this is one of the great peaks of the Old Testament scriptures in which the prophets are speaking about this amazing new covenant, this time where God will indwell his people and make his home with us. This is unbelievable. We should stand in awe of this every time we come to it in the scriptures. Look at verse 30, uh, 24 of chapter 37. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall have one shepherd. We've seen the, sh- the themes of God gathering his people under one shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. How will we, they do that? We've already seen because he will put his spirit within them. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. This is God fulfilling his promise of making his home with his people forever. I hope you see some of the implications of this. One, there are these, there's this familial aspect to us. We are not orphans If we are in Christ, we have a family. God is making his home with us. We have God as our father and these brothers and sisters around you as actual, true brothers and sisters, true family. So our biological families reflect this true relationship of the Godhead and what has now been extended down to us who by faith come to him. Also, one implication, we should recognize 
this gift and privilege that we have in the Godhead dwelling within us. Maybe you often hear it in terms of our country or your town or your city that we long for the good old days, that we we wish we could go back to, to this particular point in time. And often what we do is we fail to remember some of the bad things that took place in that time. We, we only remember the, the good, nostalgic things that took place in that time. It also might be a temptation for us to look back in history and imagine with longing what it would be like to be there at the burning bush. Wow! What if I could be there and see God part the Red Sea and His people walking through on dry land? What if I could see these amazing miracles that took place in the Old Testament? But if we do that, if we long for the past where God has worked with His people that we read about in the Old Testament Scripture, we are getting it completely backwards. These Old Testament people of God, they longed to see the promises fulfilled that we get to receive here and now. They looked with longing upon the pouring out of the Spirit. Peter says angels look upon these things with longing. And we forget this amazing privilege that we have, the Godhead Trinity dwelling within us, brothers and sisters. Do not long for that which is less than what you already have. Rather, enjoy it and rejoice in it. Recognize this amazing privilege privilege that all of our Old Testament heroes longed for, that the angels in heaven look upon with longing and think, wow, and they give glory to God at what he is doing in us, the people of God. Finally, one last implication is present then your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You are a temple of the living God. God dwells within you and that should have a motivating that should have a motivating effect upon us to present our members as instruments of righteousness the spirit of the living God dwells in me I want to glorify God with all that I am thought words deeds and turn away from any sin that would be, bring shame upon Christ Jesus promises disciples these things, and they they are amazing promises. And finally, in verses 25 to 31, he promises to give them his peace. All these promises are related, and they're related to the Holy Spirit, what he, he brings. He promises the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, which will also give to them the presence of Jesus himself and will also give them the peace which Jesus leaves them. Jesus is teaching them now while he's still with them. He's telling them these truths, but he promises this paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. Because they wouldn't get it right now. They wouldn't get all of it. But later on, they would get it. And they would be responsible for writing and speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is why we have the, Holy, the rest of the Holy Scriptures that we have. Because the Holy Spirit taught them and brought to their remembrance all that Jesus said to them. This is post-resurrection, post-ascension, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. 
And Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. We may read that and think that this is just a sort of tranquility, this sort of uh, Buddhist peace of mind. And there is a sense in which this is true, that, that God gives us tranquility, lack of fear, lack of worry, lack of, of doubt. He gives us peace. But it is, it is not that, first and foremost. First, it is objective peace which he gives us throughout the book of John as he speaks of life and of peace and of light. He is speaking about salvation. These are salvific terms. So first, we should understand this peace to be peace that God is giving, that Jesus is giving his disciples through his own work. He's about to leave. All this is in the context of Jesus departing his disciples to the cross, to his brutal death on the cross, by which he would purchase their peace. We have inner peace because we have objective, outer peace with God, between us and God. Imagine, imagine a man who accidentally kills another man. He didn't mean to do it. He was sorry for it. He's on trial for life in prison. And through the court system, the jury comes to a decision. They, they find him not guilty. He, he had this, this threat of life in prison hanging over him. He didn't know what he would do, how, how full of sorrow he would become. He would lose his family as he went to prison. And yet, as the sentence is pronounced, and they pronounce not guilty over him, what is his response in being freed from this terrible obligation that he would have to fulfill? He would have a new lease on life. He would have gratitude for being let off. He would do whatever he could to to care for the family who lost their loved one. He would be a totally changed person, would he not? How much more, brothers and sisters, those of us who have been set free from the wrath of God and eternal punishment. For we broke the law of God, not by accident. You willfully rebelled against your Maker. You broke God's law willfully and intentionally. You cannot claim ignorance. You cannot claim that it was an accident. Every time you have sinned, you have done it on purpose against your Lord and your Maker. And for this, the Scripture tells us we deserve His wrath, His punishment to be poured out on us. This is what we deserve. Every human deserves this because of his or her sin. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, his substitutionary sacrifice for sinners, his death on the cross, he took the wrath of God for anyone and everyone who will come in faith to Jesus Christ. Trusting him with warm affection, clinging to him, rejoicing in him, treasuring him above all things. And you have peace with God by the blood of Jesus Christ. How then shall we live? With what sort of attitude ought we live? With what sort of zeal and eagerness to live for His glory? 
We've been filled with His Holy Spirit. We've been forgiven of all of our sins. We've been given a peace which passes all understanding. How then shall we live? Well, Jesus tells His disciples, you should live with faith and rejoicing. You should rejoice because I'm departing to go with the Father. You should rejoice because He's going to where our salvation is won on the cross and Jesus ascended and He would pour out His Spirit upon His people and He would share the glory with the Father which He had in the beginning. The exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I say to you, brothers and sisters, rejoice in this privileged possession that we possess. Filled with His Spirit, and saved to sin no more. Let us pray.